0: Now it is, of course, now that i said that. <laughs> all right, so it's not the White House, but it's the place where the senators meet, right? The Capitol Building, is that right? Do I have it right, adults? Yeah. Okay, all right. So that's the Capitol Building. So that's kind of a symbol of our government's authority and power, right? Um, So that kind of represents our government. Today we're going to be talking about power and how power is used and established back in the kingdom of Israel um, at the beginning of Solomon's reign. But for our country, that's our symbol of power. And now we know as we read Romans 13 that God has established authorities God has established the powers that be and especially in this day and age there's many times where we're frustrated with the people that are in power because their views their understanding of the world their uh, rejection of God's Word and biblical principles so it's many times very frustrating but we're told in Romans 13 That ultimately, even if these leaders are disobedient, they are still placed in positions of authority that we have to respect. Now, if they were to command us to do things contrary to what God has said, like we see in the New Testament, we need to obey God rather than man. But, for the most part, especially in our country, we're allowed the freedoms to worship and serve the Lord and those don't often come to conflict but we're gonna see here an example in first Kings chapter 2 of a transition of power here uh, from David to Solomon we saw the starting of that last week in chapter 1 and we're gonna see how that officially changes over in chapter 2 so let's go ahead and read uh, the first nine uh, first uh, nine verses of 2 Kings 2, before we pray and dive into it in more detail. So let's look at uh, 1 Kings 2, verses 1 through 9. It says, As David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon his son, saying, I am going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses, uh, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn, so that the Lord may carry out his promise, which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel." Now you also know what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me, what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner, and to Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed. who He also shed the blood of war in peace, and he put on the blood of war on his belt, about his waist, and on his sandals, on his feet. So act according to your wisdom, And do not let his gray hair go down to Sheol in peace, but show kindness to the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table, for they assisted me when I fled from Absalom your brother. Behold, there is with you Shimei, the son of Gera the Benjamite of Behurim. Now it was he who cursed me with a violent curse on the day I went to Mahanaim, But when he came to me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not let him go unpunished, for you are a wise man, and you will know what you ought to do to him, and you will bring his gray hair down to Sheol with blood. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are in control. We thank you that you have revealed these things in your word that happened in history that we may learn from them, that we may be changed, that we may be better because of them. Some, some things we read, Father, are hard at times to put into uh, application in our day. We just pray for your wisdom, your guidance in doing that, and may we be encouraged about your power and authority and how you rule, and that we would learn from it and be able to make application to our day, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so we start off verse 1 there. We saw the setting, right? We saw the setting, what's going on here in chapter 2. We see that David is on the brink of death. David has been king in Israel. He has been, overall, a good king. He was not a perfect king. He did disobey in that matter of uh, Bathsheba and Uriah, um, and there was a time where he numbered the people in a way that uh, God was not pleased with. But overall, David's been a loyal, faithful king to the Lord, other than those things. And as an example, and now things are going to transition to Solomon. But we see he's at the time of his death here. So we see Sol- Solomon listening to David because there's going to be a, a, a challenge from David on what Solomon is to do. And uh, David is giving Solomon some advice and uh, suggestions on what to do. It would be helpful for us to understand how the rest of the chapter plays out. So we see in verses 2 through 9 this charge from David. And the first thing we see in verse 2 is he says that he should um, show himself a man and be strong. Be strong. This reminds me of what we read about the Lord challenging Joshua after taking over for Moses. Remember the Lord told him, and we see in chapter 1 of Joshua, be strong, be of good courage, um, for I'm with you, just like I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you. So be strong. Same kind of thing here. David uh, is encouraging him. This this phrase as well, uh, be be a man, uh, show yourself a man, uh, It. It also was used at times in battle situations where the men are encouraging each other to be strong as men as they go into battle. So David is challenging Solomon that you've got a tough job. You're going to have to encounter some difficult things and you need to be up to that challenge. So he starts off by encouraging him to be a firm leader in very similar language to what we see God encouraging Joshua with. Um, But we also see the key to his success, the key to his success, and we're going to see tonight, I, I, I think basically two concepts we should see in this chapter to help us apply it to our day. The first of which is the internal requirement, or what we as individuals need to do to be successful in whatever role we have, and certainly as a corporate body, as a church, um, there's a need to obey the Lord as first and foremost and I would apply this as well to our country even though we're not the nation of Israel we're not a replacement for Israel but for any country to expect God's blessing and success ultimately obedience to the Lord is necessary and we'll may get into a little bit more later but I think this is especially important in our country to realize today I, we have had a lot of success economically and and warfare we've been largely protected from major warfare we did have the 9-11 incidents and we've had some local terrorist things happen but for the most part we've been protected from warfare and things like that but we shouldn't think it's just because of capitalism or Um, just having economic success, that's been why, or just simply because we're isolated, being a separate island, if you will, North America separated off from Europe and Asia. Ultimately, we should recognize this country has been founded upon religious principles and has been largely a Christian nation for most of its existence. And that is what we should attribute that success and that to. Um, But... We see that slipping away in our day, don't we? We see a great change that's taking place, and now the vast majority do not consider themselves Christian, or if they consider themselves Christians, it's a very different kind of Christian than has been historically, too. True. But look with me at verse 3 how David expands on obeying the Lord. He says in verse 3 Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk. And notice uh, David. Uh, we believe wrote Psalm 119. If you read Psalm 119, we see David use many different words in Psalm 119 to speak of the Word of God. And he does a similar thing here uh, in talking to Solomon. He says you need to keep his way or walk in his ways to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, his testimonies, and if I've forgotten anything basically he's saying according to what is written in the law of Moses basically everything you need to obey God's word that's the key to success even though you are this person that has the entire authority in this country essentially the highest power the highest position of authority it is important you obey God and as we started out the introduction of this book That's what we saw there as well. In Deuteronomy 17, God made it clear that the king is supposed to have his own copy of God's word and to read it, study it daily because that's the key for him to have success. David's reminded him of that as well. And then he says, verse 4, So that the Lord may carry out his promise which he spoke concerning me saying if your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel and I, and I think this phrase this reminder here is an important theme throughout the whole book of Kings first and second they needed to obey God and be faithful in walking with God with their whole heart in order for that promise to be fulfilled, for there to consistently, constantly be a ruler on the throne of David. And we see at the end of the book of Kings, uh, they're overtaken by Babylon. So a key indicator throughout this book is that they fail ultimately to do this. There is not a consistent walking with the Lord. But they need to do that, and that's what David's charging Solomon with here, so that there will be a king. Now, interestingly, and perhaps the difficult part of this passage for us, David gives Solomon some tough instructions. He says he needs to take care of some people. He needs to take care of some people in verses five through nine. He says, first of all, you need to punish Joab, and he explains Joab killed two people essentially in cold blood Joab was the commander of the army of Israel and there was a point at which the kingdom was being taken from Saul and was transitioning over to David and Abner the leader of Saul's army the commander was cooperating with David and David wanted to receive him and welcome him and peacefully resolve things but Joab took matters into his own hand and killed Abner even though that was not what David wanted to happen and now you might say well Abner killed Joab's brother and there is this principle of vengeance talked about in the Old Testament but it's clear when you read the account what happened with Abner and Joab's brother Abner did not want to kill him, but Abner's or Joab's brother continued to pursue him. I believe it's Asahel, it was his brother's name, right? Um, and continued to pursue him, and eventually Abner killed him, you could argue in self defense. Um, but Joab, in vengeance, killed Abner. And also, David uh, had put a mesa in charge of the army instead of Joab. And uh, Joab didn't want to give up that position of authority and power, so in cold blood, pretending to come to greet and welcome and kiss Amasa, actually put a knife in his gut and killed him. So Joab had committed two cold-blooded murders, in addition to the fact that he had killed Absalom, when David had specifically said not to do that. So, Joab had several things for which he was guilty, and David speaks of him having blood about his waistband, in other words, basically covering his whole person, or on his feet, his whole lifestyle here. So he's been a man of blood, and he deserves to pay for that, David's saying. But then, he also says to show kindness to the sons of Barzillai, and Barzillai is one who helped David when he was running from Absalom. He was running, he was uh, away from uh, Jerusalem, and Barzillai is one who came to his rescue, gave him things, provisions that he needed during that time for him and his men. So David says to, to that uh, family that you're to treat kindly, let them eat at your table. In other words, provide for them and, and show kindness to them for the kindness that they had shown to David. And then he also mentions Shimei. Shimei, when David was fleeing from Absalom, had cursed David. And uh, David's basically calling for his uh, punishment as well. Now, again, that may be one you question, what, what's the problem there? David said he wouldn't kill him, uh, as he mentions there, he vowed it. But why would he be worthy of death? Well... Um, there's a couple reasons you could argue this number one uh, and maybe the more remote Shimei was a Benjamite as it tells us and there may have been some indication that he was rejecting David's claim of the throne because he stole it away from Saul so there could be this undercurrent of rebellion and rejection of David's leadership and rightful rule on the throne um, but also, Exodus 22:28 talks about not cursing, or it forbids cursing an Israelite leader. So cursing the king would be a, considered a capital offense. Uh, but because of the things David was going through at that time, he chose to have mercy on him and not take his life. But he suggests that Solomon should. So a, a, couple, a couple things to think about. I know it's kinda tough how do we apply some of this warfare stuff to our day well I just uh, encourage you with a couple thoughts number one as we already talked about obedience is the key for us as individual believers as well as a church as a corporate body obedience is key that's what uh, David starts with saying obedience is key as a church obedience is important we observed and obeyed one of the commandments of the Lord this morning in observing the Lord's table. That was done in obedience to what the Lord has said. So there's an important to, importance to be obedient. As believers, we need to love and provoke one another to good works, as it talks about in Hebrews 10, uh, 24 to 25. We need to serve one another and help one another. We need to rejoice together and weep together, as Romans 12 tells us. We need to also confess our faults to one another, as James 5.16 tells us. We need to love one another with brotherly affection, as we see in Romans 12.10. And we also need to go and make disciples of all nations, as we're told in Matthew 28. There are many things we need to obey the Lord in. We need to corporately obey together that God has instructed us, and that's the key to having success. But as I mentioned, I think we also need to Uh, Beware that our country's success depends on obedience to the Lord as well. And we should attribute blessing for obedience uh, that we've had success and peace for so long. But as our country slips away, not that we should just live in fear, but we should recognize there may be consequences and uh, things that happen Uh, that hopefully and we should pray that the Lord will turn the hearts of the people of our country back to the Lord um, and maybe that some of these difficult things that happen will uh, point people back to the Lord. But we see here in verse 10, we see that there's going to be now a transition. The transition because David dies. We see in verse 10, it says, David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And it tells us in verse 11 that David reigned over Israel forty years, seven years he reigned in Hebron and thirty-three in Jerusalem. So the fact that he ruled, ruled forty years is a, a sign of his success as king. He had a long reign. And we'll see some of these kings as we go through the book, their, their reign is very short. Um, many of which you'll read they did something and then they slept with their fathers and it it was basically over right? Um, but David had a long reign and rule because he was uh, a man after God's own heart and a good ruler and we see in verse 12 a key idea as we look through the rest of it we'll see this theme uh, built upon it. it says in verse 12 Solomon sat on the throne of David his father and his kingdom was firmly established. So we see the kingdom is firmly established in Solomon's hand. And we're going to see that play out. Now, I've got four, let's see, one, two, three, four major people that David, or Solomon has to deal with. And we won't dive into all the details of what happens here. But we basically are going to see these threats to his power as a legitimate king in Israel are going to be dealt with. So first of all, Adonijah. Now, if we start reading 13 to 18, what we'll see is Adonijah who was the one in chapter 1, that's the brother of Solomon. He is the older brother of Solomon, and he is then going to ask for Abishag. You see there was this beautiful woman found they talk about in the beginning of chapter 1 to take care of, to be the nurse for David in his old age. And uh, uh, this this woman was one of the women in the kingdom. And Adonijah basically goes to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, and says, can you ask for for this woman to be my wife from, from Solomon? I know Solomon will listen to you. He won't listen to me. But um, can you go ask him? So let, let's read... Uh, I want to get down to verse 15 because there's a key thought there. He says, Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, and she said, Do you come peacefully? And he said, Peacefully. Uh, Then he said, I have something to say to you. And she said, Speak. So he said, You know that the kingdom was mine and that all Israel expected me to be king. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brothers, for it was his from the Lord. Now, I'm making one request, don't refuse me. And she said, speak. Then he said, please, uh, speak to Solomon the king, for he will not refuse you, that he may give me Abishag, the Shunammite, as a wife. And Bathsheba said, very well, I'll speak to the king for you. Now notice his attitude there. What does he say? He says, the kingdom was mine. What, was it really? Was it really his kingdom? No. David was still alive. David hadn't announced him to be king; he was rebelling, trying to take the kingdom by force. And we see at the end of chapter one that he basically had repented of that and was clinging to the horns of the altar, um, that he didn't want to be killed, asking for mercy. Solomon had him brought, and he basically swore that you know he'd be loyal, and uh, and uh, Solomon sent him home and didn't kill him. Well, now he's asking for this woman. Well. What we see play out here is Bathsheba goes to Solomon, asks Solomon for uh, this woman to be given to Adonijah, and what does Solomon say in response? Let's look at 22 uh, to 24, how Solomon responds here. King Solomon answered and said to his mother, And why are you asking for Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him also the kingdom, for he is my older brother, Even for him, for Abathar the priest, and for Joab the son of Zariah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, May God do so to me, and more also, if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life. Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and set me on the throne of David my father, and who has made me as a house as he promised, surely Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon sent Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and he fell on him so that he died. So, we have a threat to the rule of Solomon. You know, some people have been really hard on Solomon for these things that he does with these people, but this was a legitimate threat to his power. It, of all the women of Israel, he ad, had to ask for this one who had been especially chosen for the king and his attitude is clearly that the kingdom was his, this suggests he is rebelling, and he's looking for another way to try to subdue the kingdom, to get it back. And so Solomon deals with him, and and essentially removes him from earth. So, let's look at verse 26. Solomon continues, even somebody who David didn't mention... But Solomon then goes to Abiathar the priest in verse 26 and says, uh, Go to Anathoth to your own field, for, for you deserve to die. But I will not put you to death at this time, because you carried the ark of the Lord before David my father, and because you were afflicted in everything which my father was afflicted. So Solomon dimi- dismissed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord in order to fulfill the word of the Lord which he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh so Solomon removes this priest because he was one of the conspirators with Adonijah so Solomon is removing all potential threats so Adonijah is being removed from the priesthood here and uh, therefore he can't have power to uh, conspire with people who would uh, be trying to take over power from Solomon so he removes him but we notice here it's a fulfillment of what God says about Eli, if you remember Eli, Eli had two wicked sons. Anyone remember their name? The wicked sons of Eli the priest, Phineas and Hophni. Phineas and Hophni right, uh, two two wicked uh, priests, and they uh, they were uh, killed in one day in battle, and the ark was captured. Remember, they had taken the ark out and. They were killed, and the ark was taken captive, and Eli died that same day, all of which was uh, a fulfillment of what God would, said would happen. And so this person actually is a descendant of Eli and is the final one that needed to be removed from the priesthood, as God said would happen. So I didn't know my genealogies that well, so I had to look this up. So I just share this with you. Um, to understand. Um, Aaron was the priest, right? The original priest. He actually had four sons, but remember, two of them were killed when they offered strange fire to the Lord, so we don't trace their genealogies. Um, We have Eleazar and Ithamar, and then that's where we get Eli, and then his two sons who were killed, and they had Phinehas uh, Phineas had a high tub in Ichabod. Ichabod is the one that was born on that day, and the and the wife died as well, and they called the, the child Ichabod, saying the glory has departed because the ark was captured. Right? So, and then we get down to Ahimelech who had Abiathar. So that's the the guy we're talking about. He is removed and he is the last in the line of Eli that were the priests. So Solomon removing him and giving the priesthood responsibilities to Zadok, which he does here in, a, in chapter uh, verse 35, is a fulfillment of what God said would happen. So this is another indication that Solomon's act here of removing him was a good thing that the Lord was behind because it was a fulfillment of what God had said would happen. All right, so we also see then Joab. Joab uh, in verse 28. Now, so Adonijah's been killed. Abiathar has been removed from the priesthood. So the other conspirator with them was Joab, the commander of the army. So he knows he's next. So he goes, basically, we see, and, and goes to the horns of the altar. We see. Now, news came to Joab, for Joab had followed Adonijah, although he had not followed Absalom. And Joab fled to the tent of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar. All right, so this actually was our picture last week of Adonijah at the altar, right? So he goes there. Why, why do they do this? It is a plea for mercy, right? Now, there was a provision in the Old Testament for somebody who had accidentally killed somebody to go... And plead for mercy and for the high priest to have mercy on them. And, and they, if it was found to be an accident, could stay there until, in the city of refuge, until the high priest had died. And then they would be free to return. And the avenger of blood, uh, the family relative, wouldn't be able to come after them and, and, and kill them in vengeance, right? But the rule was for those who had done it in accident it was not for cold-blooded murderers alright so especially in Exodus twenty-one fourteen, it specifically says a murderer shall be taken from my altar and cut off alright so Joab is here pleading for mercy but he's got no case alright so basically what happens in the story is uh, the, the commander under Solomon Benaiah comes to get him he says come out he says i will not i'll die here and he goes Beniah goes back to solomon and basically says as you wish right okay fine you're going to uh, die you're going to die there." so he commands him fall on him he deserves to die but it's interesting verse 31 and 33 look at what solomon says about joab the king said to him Do as he has spoken fall upon him and bury him and you may remove him from me and from my father's house the blood which Joab shed without cause The Lord will return on his blood on his own head because he fell on two men more righteous and better than he and killed them with the sword while my father did not know it Abner the son of Ner commander of the army of Israel and Amasa the son of Jethur the commander of the army of Israel so shall their blood return on the head of Joab and on the head of his descendants forever. But to David and his descendants, his house and his throne may be there. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, His house and his throne may there be peace from the Lord forever. So basically, Benaiah goes and kills him, as Solomon said. So again, while Solomon gets a hard time from some people in doing these things, he is cleansing blood guiltiness from Israel. Joab was a cold-blooded murderer. And frankly, David should have dealt with him sooner. So Solomon is carrying out what should have happened a long time ago. Alright, so he takes care of Joab. And we see he's going to uh, take care of Shimei as well. Though, let's look at... uh, um, Oh, I'm sorry, verse 35. So after he, he takes care of Abiathar and Adonijah and Joab... We see that Solomon appoints Beniah the son of Jehoiada, over the army in place of Joab. And he appointed Zadok, the priest, in place of Abiathar. Okay, so we have the new appointments there. And then we have um, Shimei uh, in verses 36 to 46. So let's just read 36 uh, down to 38. It says, Now the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, Build for yourself a house in Jerusalem and live there, and do not go out from there to any place. For on the day you go out and cross over the brook Kidron, you will know for certain that you shall die. Your blood shall be on your own head. All right. So basically, uh, Solomon is saying, uh, you need to stay put in your own house. And you basically aren't going anywhere. Um, You need to stay there. Notice what Shimei says. Verse 38. Shimei then said to the king, Your word is good. That sounds good. As the Lord my king has said, so your servant will do. So Shimei lived in Jerusalem many days. So he agrees to this. He consents, right? Okay, you're not going to kill me. That's good. I'll take it. I agree to your terms, right? So what happens though, however, is... Shimei has some slaves that basically run away from him, so he goes to get them. And then Solomon hears about it and says, basically calls him to account and says, Didn't I say you're not to leave? And you agree? And so basically he dies as well. All right, So we have the elimination and the final wish of David, if you will. These men that he's asked for are all taken care of, as well as even the the priest being removed from his office that David didn't mention so they're all taken care of so we have this final word at the end of chapter two look there the final phrase of chapter two it says thus the kingdom was established in the hands of Solomon I would say a couple things about this as we look towards moving to a close number one I believe the establishment here spoken of is a way of saying that God's blessing was on Solomon And he was making him the firm, established, authoritative ruler over his people. As we talked about last time or two times ago, Solomon was God's choice to be the ruler. And this is an indication that God was helping to establish Solomon firmly as the leader over his people. All the challenges were removed. And again, I I mentioned some people look at Solomon pretty harshly about these things that happened, but I suggest to you these were legitimate things that were dealing with real problems. Look with me at Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. If you you understand that the ultimate fulfillment of what God is speaking of to David and saying, You will have a son who rules forever. The ultimate fulfillment of that is who? Jesus Christ, right? Well, let's look at what Jesus Christ is going to do to his enemies when he returns. Look at Matthew chapter 10. What is going to happen to the enemies of Christ when he returns? It's always bad when the preacher is the last one to get there. Uh, Matthew 10, all right, verses, I didn't tell you which verse, so 40, 40 to 43. Uh, He's been, uh, I must have the wrong verse. Of course. 43, it's the parable of the tears. I'm not seeing, it must be maybe 13. Yeah, sorry. See, Matthew 13. I guess I'm not the last one there. <laughs> uh, whatever I have to do to be... The <laughs> Matthew 13:40 says, "...just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and all who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire." In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. There is a constant battle of keeping God's people pure from the enemies of God. Now, in the end of the age, and at this time with Solomon, there was, there's physical force used to deal with the enemies of God we're in a period we're in an age where that's not what we do the weapons of our warfare are spiritual right um, we're not living in a physical kingdom like they were then or we will be later but there is a need to as we said at the beginning number one to obey God but part of our obedience is also keeping ourselves pure individually and corporately there is a responsibility in the church to protect God's people there are people that come into the church they talk about in the New Testament as wolves who appear to be sheep who come in for the purpose of destroying or leading people away so there is a warning throughout the New Testament about watching out for and dealing with these kinds of people for example heretics, those who teach false doctrine, and won't be admonished. I mean, part of the idea is that they will not be corrected. It's one of the key indicators of, of the problem. It's not just somebody didn't have a theology class or somebody's ignorant, but it's somebody who's purposefully teaching false things to lead people away. Those kinds of things, we're told, we're told those are wolves. Those kind of people need to be kept out. They need to be removed. And I know that's painful and difficult to think about in a church setting because whosoever will may come, right? Yes, we we share the gospel with everybody. We want people to come to church. We want people to come to know Christ. But there are also people who are purposefully destructive, who with multiple admonishments still do not change. We do need to be careful about those kinds of people. And... My suggestion to you, though it's a hard and challenging thought, is obeying the Lord includes both doing what he says individually, but also corporately. And we talked about some of those things of obedience. But one of those factors of obedience is doing the hard thing and confronting those that are disruptive or causing trouble or trying to take on authority they're not supposed to have, to be subversive. Or um, it talks about uh, a, a man in one of the John letters who loved to have the preeminence, somebody who just loved to be first place or have attention, and so would take on authority and power and responsibility. Those kinds of people need to be dealt with. Jude talks about contending for the faith. We need to individually and corporately obey, but we also need to work at making sure we remove true enemies. So, as we think about this passage, um, it is a challenge. And hopefully, that kind of difficult thing, that removal, is a rare situation. And we certainly, as we see in Matthew 18, take lots of steps towards working with people that are difficult or sinning to bring them to repentance and we give them opportunities to respond that way but people who will not ultimately have to be dealt with and removed for the protection of the whole no one individual is more important than the body the church and we need to protect it. we need to obey and we also need to remove uh, enemies in extreme cases. Now, I would say, lastly, just to put this thought in there too, other enemies could be idols of the heart. There could be things in our lives that are also an obstruction or hindrance or, or cause destruction to us individually or to the church because there are sins that need to be dealt with. Those as well are enemies to the cause and also need to be dealt with firmly so that the church will be firmly established and go forward in obedience to the Lord. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage, though in some ways challenging because it may call us to do some hard things. Help us, Father, to be committed to wholeheartedly obeying you, submitting to the authorities you've established for us, and help us all to be willing, when necessary, to do the hard things of confronting, challenging, and certainly, Father, help us not to rush to judge people inappropriately and be harsh and mean to people who are just ignorant, but help us, Father, to recognize when there are truly wolves that need dealt with, help us to be willing uh, and firm in dealing with that, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.